It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, a bit unusual for this, not done it for ages, I was doing the show from home today. So we've been taking a look at working from home, speaking to a world leader in working from home, the Professor Nick Bloom. Apparently we need to rewire, well, just about everything. So really, really interesting interview coming up with him in just a moment. We'll speak to Indian Art and James Marriott as well, getting their take on the news. But first, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned there might be Chinese spies working in Parliament. Well, the walls having ears would make a change in the ceiling having cracks in it. Yes, we learned the Palace of Westminster has rack concrete. So I asked Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen what he would do to smarten the place up a bit. What we should really be doing with the Houses of Parliament is, is, is basically just open it up to a changing rooms makeover. You know, forget the black concrete, forget the moth, just cover it in sticky back plastic and some <laughs> gaily shaped pieces of MDF. We learned that it's not just the building crumbling in the House of Lords. Might we all be able to avoid buying new clothes if the, if the authorities in this house did something about the moths? We learned from impressionist Lewis MacLeod how one thing can lead to another. Hello, I'm Nick Clegg. Sorry about that. It's Nick Clegg. You know, the voice is slightly up there, but if you sort of bring him down and make him slightly camp, you get Boy George. We learned that after Rishi Sunak resurrected... Captain Hindsight over here. We learned that Keir Starmer then spent seven days coming up with this... In action, man. Which sadly prompted Penny Mordaunt to hit back with this. We discover that like Beach Ken... He has zero balls. We learned that Theresa May is going to say this on Times Radio later. Certainly I've always said that immigration has been good for the country. Despite being the architect of the hostile environment and saying this in 2015. At best, the net economic and fiscal effect of high immigration is close to zero. And we learned that my Times Radio listeners are the best Times Radio listeners. I am a part-time poo picker. Oh, a what? A part-time poo picker. What sort of poo? Coffee poo. And that is what we learned this week. Right, now it's time for these two. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott. India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor over my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. On Times Radio. Ah, we say hello to India Knight. Hello, India. Good morning. And James Marriott. Hello, James. Good morning. 
Now, James, um, uh, talking of you battering away at your column, let's talk about your column this week. So I thought it was interesting, uh, as a young fogey, um, the, uh, you, you were basically saying the 60s weren't all that. It's the 1920s you thought were dead cool. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, as a columnist, it's important to address the most important contemporary events in society. So uh, this week's column was about a decade, now 100 years old, um, which I thought was quite modern for me, actually, on my recent <laughs> But <laughs> to explain your argument, it, yes, it's my sort argument. Of the, it's that the sixties is seen as the sort of the swinging sixties is the sexy decade. Exactly. So we think of the nineteen sixties as the decade which forged the modern world. You know, the sexual revolution, fashion was revolutionised, a golden age of music, the invention of pop music. You know, we think the modern world started in the sixties. My argument was that it actually started in the nineteen twenties. So I was saying that a lot of the things that we think belong to the 60s can be traced back to the 20s. Um, so the birth control pill arrived in the 60s, but the first uh, contraceptive clinic in London opened in the 1920s. We think that short skirts arrived in the 60s, but flappers were wearing short skirts in the 1920s. The 60s also marks the beginning of our democracy. You know, it's only since, sorry, the 20s marks the beginning of our democracy. It's only since 1928 that everybody's been able to vote. Um on with equal rights uh the labor first labor government was in the 1920s so the collapse of the kind of victorian political system of concert of tories versus liberals collapsed in the 20s i could go on i don't know i don't want to bore you or the listeners but i think so many things that seem essential to our modern world can all be traced back to the 1920s and so many things that seem like they started in the 60s actually started in the 20s what do you think, India? I sort of want, without obviously wanting to poo-poo James's excellent column, where you could probably choose any decade and mount the argument that lots of things happened then because lots of things happened lots of times. Yes, I think the 20s, um, I think James has a point about the 20s. I think about it particularly in terms of um, women's clothing. You know, women were boned and corseted and wired and kind of squished and restricted. And that incredible liberation of being able to cut your hair short and wear clothes that were comfortable. It was a kind of amazing thing. But of course, everything that was fantastic about the 20s when sort of stopped completely because of the war. So the 60s, I think, is a really interesting period because partly because all those people returning from the war and all the people who'd been at home during the war were completely transformed and they couldn't go back to how they'd lived before. I find all of that really, really interesting. And then the 60s comes along and, you know, everybody's former soldier father is freaked out by their teenager wanting to take acid and grow their hair long. So they're all they're all really interesting. But I think James's point about lots of things originating in the 1920s is right, is is really good and true. Um, I, I suppose the other thing that's interesting about the 60s, um, James, I think that, uh, our new new colleague, Dominic Sambuk, uh, has written about this before, that actually for a lot of people, the 60s weren't all, uh, you know, um, Austin Powers and yeah. uh, miniskirts. The, exactly. the life, life was still quite a lot like the 50s. You know, it takes a while for, um, you know, lots of parts of the country to, to sort of catch up with all of that. And actually, you know, the great revolutions that we now think were happening in the 60s weren't really. Yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of truth in that. I, I was pleased to say, actually, speaking of Dominic Sandbrook, our new colleague, that on Twitter, he endorsed my theory about the 1920s being more important. So 
that gave me some reassurance that I was onto something. But yes, yeah, certainly, I think the 60s are probably held up in quite such a huge way in the national imagination because it revolutionised life for a lot of upper middle class people living in London. Mm. And upper middle class people living in London obviously find it very hard to imagine they're not the only people in the universe. What? Um, (laughs) I think they took the fact that suddenly they're all wearing crazy clothes and taking drugs and, you know, they because that was happening to them, they kind of assumed this was like a national phenomenon. Whereas, you know, a lot of that stuff probably took, what, a couple of decades to filter out into the rest of society, I think. I think there were places where it didn't sort of filter out to ever, really, actually. You know, very kind of remote rural places. I think the 60s passed them by and maybe the 70s too. You know, that that there are, as you say, when when we think of the 60s and the King's Road and Austin Powers, we're thinking about a really, really niche, tiny group of people. Exactly. And there's some amazing statistics in those um, Dominic Sandbrook books, actually. I was looking at one of them yesterday about, I think... When when Mick Jagger, uh, when his house was raided by the police for drug offences, they polled young people and something like 85% of young people thought he should be in prison, uh, mm. which is obviously a stance that even the Times was opposed to, the famous editorial about why break a butterfly in a wheel, we're treating Mick Jagger too harshly. But, you know, young people were kind of more conservative than even, you know, the establishment. And that's something that, as Dominic obviously argues correctly, we tend to forget. Would you like to nominate a different decade, India? I think the 80s. I mean, I'm picking the 80s because I was born in 1965, so I was a teenager in the 80s. I think the 80s were significant for probably not terribly good reasons. I think the legacies of the 80s, the chief one being that greed is good, um, you know, the gentrification of the, the, that, for me, as far as I'm aware, that was the start of really noticeable gentrification of um, certain parts of London. It was very kind of buzzy and very loud and very exciting if you were making money, which lots of people were, um, and um, maybe less fun if if you weren't. But I think it's culturally an important decade, the 80s. But as you say, you know, every decade has its merits and demerits. I also wonder whether there's a bit of the who gets to write the history. And you're right that the, the, the way that the 80s is shaped by essentially people who are in the the business of shaping opinion and basically publishing books and all that sort of stuff. In the same way, there was a whole generation who did the same thing about the 60s, about the 60s. And actually, maybe this was about the 20s, James, is that the generation who would have done that were actually quite busy with the Second World War. And uh, and that sort of, that was the defining, changing moment. So there was no one really to to tell the story of the 20s because, but even when we think about history, we think about the First World War, the Second World War, and the, the bit in between gets forgotten. Exactly. I think that's a really, really good point. Uh, we find it so hard to look past the Second World War. And I think we have this kind of assumption that the Second World War happened, this huge national event. And then when it finished, history basically kind of began out of nothing. You know, all these kind of post-war trends, we believe, sprang up spontaneously after the Second World War as a result of the Second World War. And they actually go further back. I mean, I guess there are interesting um, parallels between the 20s and the 60s, because the 20s was another kind of post-war decade, a more affluent decade, and also defined like the 60s by a kind of real generation class. There was a lot of resentment about people who'd been sent into the trenches in the First World War of the older generation that had sent them there. And I think that was part of the youth rebellion that occurred in the 20s. So Mm. yeah, there's there's an interesting parallel, but I think you're certainly right that the Second World War obscures so much of our history. 
and actually i know from from even from politics you know that basically for, for even quite serious people uh politics begins with churchill and anything before that is sort of ancient history and actually the thing in the 20s and i know because i researched quite a lot of this when i was writing my book was that you know they've got the very first Labour Prime Minister in uh, Ramsay MacDonald. You know, politics really changed in that period. Labour were taking... Yeah, that liberals. is our modern politics that began then. Yeah, that's where, it, that's where it was sort of forged and nobody really knows about any, any of the characters. Well, let's move on. It's really, really, really interesting and uh, nice sort of thoughtful, you know, intellectual debate uh, to have on a Friday morning. So let's have another <laughs> uh, thoughtful intellectual debate. How many cookbooks is too many? Uh, Ruth Davidson has been interviewing uh, Theresa May. You'll be able to hear the full interview uh, on Times Radio uh, this afternoon. Uh, Theresa May revealing just how many cookbooks she's got. I do have more time to cook. I'm, I'm, Philip did a count up the other day. I don't know whether this was a message to me. He said, You've now got 275 cookery books in the kitchen. So, okay, right. 275 cookbooks. How many have you got, India, as our resident cook? Mm, something pretty close to that, I should think. I've never counted them, but an awful lot. Do you use them? I use some of them. It's really interesting, this detail about Theresa May, and it makes me like her more than I did. Um, <laughs> yes, I do use them. I mean, obviously, it's very, very easy to open up an app or Google your ingredients and find a recipe online. That's that's one thing. But cookbooks are, which is why they still sell really, really well. Cookbooks aren't just about, I mean, they, of course, they ought to be good ones, ought to be about the excellence of the recipes contained within them. But they are about, they're sort of a form of fiction. They can be about transporting yourself to another country, another culture, another way of eating, another way of life. They can be about the comfort of reading about a life that you don't have, a life in which you know, your mummy's in the kitchen making stew and there's scones every day for tea and there's always a cake when you come back from school. They're about all sorts of things as well as the physical act of cooking. And I think people who like cookery books and read cookery books, because I think there is a sort certain sort of person who reads them, doesn't just use them as manuals. Um, I think... I think those people are quite imaginative and quite in tune with living their life well. And, um, yeah, I like that she's got 275 cookbooks. I now really, really want to know what they are. <laughs> I don't think we need to uh, get her to read out every title. Although, I mean, you know, she's given worse speeches. Uh, James, how many cookbooks have you got? I think I've got about eight. They all belong to my girlfriend and I never ever use them. Although what India says is incredibly true. I'm always amazed at how beautifully produced they are. We've got these things like this guy, Nigel Slater, um, Ottolenghi, and they're just filled with these beautiful, beautiful pictures. And as India says, this kind of lifestyle thing, you know, Nigel Slater's always looking like a kind of very cosy dad with his shaggy hair, always sprinkling beautiful looking salt onto vegetables. And yeah, I really envy him. Well, we've got quite. I mean, I, it's interesting actually. You say about reading India because some cookbooks, the really posh ones, probably with the matte coloured, you know, yeah, the, mm. so the glossy mm. pictures are very matte. They have endless writing and wittering before you get to the recipe. And I was like, I, just, I don't want to know, you know, the first time you saw a fish. I just want to know how much butter do I need. That's, but um, that's really interesting. I'm completely the opposite. If you ju if you just blankly give me the recipe with no prelude and no introduction then I don't like your cookbook that much. God, I this want might be the first time you've ever disagreed on something, India. 
I want tons of chat. I want all the chat, all the chat. I want to know the first time you met a fish and what you thought and what the fishes the childhood memories. Yeah. yeah. I want the whole lot. Although the, 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 I suppose the other thing, and this is true, I think this is true of reading a physical newspaper over reading a website uh, or, you know, at, browsing in a bookshop rather than looking mm-hmm. on Amazon. The, the sense of discovery that you only get yeah. by asking someone else to curate something. Absolutely. And the, and, and the fact that somebody's job is to arrange the words in a particular way on the page. So you read this and then you read that and then you turn the page and then there's that. It's been sort of, you know, there's a there's a real art to it. And and it's the same with cookbooks. The thing has been assembled incredibly carefully and thoughtfully, which, of course, you don't get if you just Google a recipe for flambéed bananas i don't know why i said that but you know macaroni cheese you google yeah but that's macaroni- you only you only end up googling things you already essentially know because you think well, yeah. i know i like that thing and i know yeah. i can find that recipe what's your exactly. go-to recipe james oh god no it's so embarrassing uh what have we been eating oh this weird thing i made up which is uh tof- chopped up tofu chopped up peppers chopped up onion then with um cumin and um paprika and yogurt and tomato paste all stirred together. It's sort of like, it's supposed to be a bit like that shakshuka thing, but it's probably not really like that. Hmm. And you invented this? Yes. What's it called? Uh, Well, there's a thing you can get in posh cafes in East London called shakshuka, which is kind of what I was aiming for, but it is a weird orange-looking colour. It's not very appetising, but that's what I have most nights. Is this when you eat it? Do you eat it in the bath, James? Uh, no, I Based no, it's not really. Conversation about you dining in the bath. Right, okay. <laughs> does that is that, that going to join your list of must must makes, India? I'm very intrigued by it. I'm, I'm intrigued by the combination of tofu and yogurt. There are eggs in it, James. Because <laughs> has eggs in it. It doesn't have eggs, but you. That's a good thought, yeah, actually. Shatsuka is see... like tomatoes, spicy tomato. Yeah. Stuff. So and maybe with chorizo in it, and then you bake an egg in it. Isn't that a shame? Yeah, there's not actually yogurt, is there? I suppose in um. No, bung an egg on top. I mean, most things are take the yogurt out, and put an egg on top, and then you're yeah, good. Put business. an egg on top. Yeah, I, this sounds actually a lot better. I don't know why I didn't think of this. Now, would you go in a driverless car? Commons Transport Committee says new laws are needed to make sure it all works properly, and that people want to use them uh well the times is uh transport correspondent ben clapworthy is here hi ben good morning so go on then sell the merits of a of a driverless car to india and james well so i had a go earlier this year in ford's first car that has the highest level of automation that's currently approved on uk roads it is effectively a a step up from advanced cruise control in that the Ford's new Mustang Mach-E will now do the steering for you. So you can get onto a motorway, it only works on motorways, but all 2,500 miles of them in the UK. And you pull onto the motorway as normal, engage the adaptive cruise control, and then the words, those magic words, hands-free, pop up, Uh, on the uh, screen in front of you and you press a button and with admittedly the first time I did it some trepidation you take your hands off the wheel and as the motorway curves and uh, turns and so on the car just drives um, along doing everything for you braking uh, accelerating what it can't do is change lanes and also what Ford call this is 
hands off but eyes on driving so you're not at the moment as what the transport select committee are talking about the next level you're not sitting there able to eat your your tofu um mixture but you (laughs) but but you can sit back and actually um relax in many ways because the car is is doing the driving for you but ben did you feel relaxed did you feel relaxed or did you feel you had to be incredibly vigilant like a meerkat in case something went wrong well at first i i felt exactly that meerkat feeling of oh my word this is so uh, out, out of your comfort zone, you know, years of driving, you've talked very clearly, you don't take your hands off the wheel, you certainly don't start glancing around. Now, if you do start looking out at the sheep or whatever are passing by, it very quickly beeps at you and says, oh, excuse me, can you keep your eyes on the road? The issue, though, I, I fear is that you do very quickly slip into um that uh, relaxed state, but also then end up doing this sort of passive stare where you're not really taking in anything that's happening but also Mm. you do have to be ready because if the car uh, goes through bad weather it will flash up and say sorry can you take back control but also if (laughs) it did if you did suddenly find yourself in a uh, huge traffic jam at the last minute it will say can you put your foot on the brake however Ford they've tested it um, in rollouts in America they say they haven't had any accidents and what we do know is that the very very vast majority if not all uh, car crashes ultimately are caused by some form of human error this removes that factor and uh, what um uh, James are you are you uh, can you drive James no but I'm look this is why I'm looking forward so much to driverless cars oh um because uh, Ben, we've got uh, our car as well as doing the sort of um, you can put it on like the autopilot, you know, thing. So it, it does the braking in front of you if you're on the motorway. There is also a thing which you know, it's sort of you've got to keep your hands on the wheel, but it sort of like guides you a little bit, you know, keeps you in the lanes. So, so this is a step on from that, rather than the idea of basically having pods that pootle about and you can sit in the back seat and have a snooze. Yeah. So this is still several levels below that pod uh, setup which you've actually seen rolled out in san francisco now there are driverless taxis at the moment though they look like cars still the very future sort of the sorry the next step of that will be effectively pods where you sit like you were in the back of a black cab facing one another but you will be right at the front because there will be no steering wheel um or clutches yeah. pedals in the, in the front of the vehicle we are still a fair way off of that what the government are waking up to the realize realization is though that unless they start thinking about this seriously um it'll be too late yeah. and the technology will be vastly ahead of where they are in knowing what is and what is not allowed yeah ben really fascinating i'm glad you made it back safely and uh, we all look forward to uh to the day that James Marrick can get in the pod and Poodle out eating tofu and yogurt. Uh, ben Clapworthy, Times Transport Correspondent, also Indian United James Marrick. Of course, you can read them both in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, rewiring the state because we're all working from home. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, 
there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Of course, for now, you must work from home if you can. But if you can't, we want to make sure that we're providing as much certainty and confidence as possible. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. One of the things that we are going to emphasise is that if it is possible for people to work from home, then we'd encourage them to do so. You need people in the office to deliver services. You can't work from home if you're a teacher. You've got to be with the children. I am very concerned that public services are not being delivered properly because people aren't in work. When will we be able to return to normal? God, that all feels a bit retro, doesn't it? Uh, it was way, way back in March 2020 that Boris Johnson announced that due to the COVID-19 outbreak, people should start working from home where they possibly can. Well, three weeks on, and we've almost turned to normality in most parts of our lives, apart from the fact that millions of people aren't going to work as often. Is the commute as we know it, the ordeal which drove Reginald Perrin mad? We have, I loved I loved the Reginald Perrin theme too. Is it all over for the standard commute yeah i'm working from home today for the albeit for the first time in ages and i've got the dog for company but more and more people are doing it as part of their normal working lives official figures show that last year cars in britain drove 19 billion fewer miles than before the pandemic in britain today people are working from home on about 25 percent of days that's compared to about five percent before 2020 but of course not everyone can do it some people could do it more easily than others and if you can do your job from your home maybe someone else could do it in a cheaper country it all means that people are driving less golfing more and making decisions to move to different parts of the country and the world but that scale of home working is going to require a total rewiring of the country 
Well, Nick Bloom is a Stanford economics professor and a world-leading expert in remote working. So the pandemic has led to a permanent surge in work from home. In Britain, we are working from home about five times as many days as we were pre-pandemic. So about 5% of full paid days work from home pre-pandemic. Now it's about 25%. And so folks are, you know, driving in less, you know, roughly one day less a week. We're saving billions of miles. Uh, that's incredibly positive, not just for less driving, less stress, less road rage, obviously the environment and our pocket. And it's interesting, actually, I'll come on to that in a moment, the sort of environment, you know, the upside benefits of this, which nobody sort of really talks about. But you are a sort of, uh, well, I think it's fair to say, world-leading expert in the world of remote working, <laughs> working from home. And you were long before the pandemic. You've been looking at this, you know, the changing nature of work for, what, two decades. So what made you interested in it? And were you, you must have been about the only person who was pleased when the pandemic came along. I definitely wasn't pleased. You know, we had our own personal issues and problems with the pandemic. But I got interested in it going back 20 years because I'm one of four kids. I grew up in London, actually, and both my parents used to work from home, one in the NHS, one in the civil service, because, you know, they're full time and they had to do childcare cover at times in the holidays. But it was horrible. You know, back in the 80s when I was growing up, it was shuffling pieces of paper. So when I guess could start doing my own research, you know, 20 years later, I started looking into it. I don't want to, you know, I'm not an overall work from home advocate. I'm not claiming we should all be fully remote. There's clearly issues with that. But I think it's safe to say we should be working from home more than we were in 2019. And that's where it's settled down now. And, you know, me, I personally go into the office about three days a week and work from home about two. And I'm happy with that. And is that because there's been a big debate about productivity and whether or not companies saw actually an uptick in productivity when people work from home initially and has that dropped back again? Is it the the act of working from home which improves productivity or is it just the your boss taking interest in you and, and looking again at your working environment and what, anything you improves productivity? Great. So this is one of these, you know, massively confused debates. So why don't I just... You know, try and clarify. There are two very different things going on. One is what's typically called hybrid. So, you know, I go into the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I work from home Monday, Friday. That's what most office workers, managers, professionals are doing. The data on that suggests that's about zero on productivity. There's benefits and and I could go through. It's quieter at home, you save and commute, but then there's maybe less face-to-face in the office. Why on earth would firms do that? The reason is employees like it a lot. They valued about the same as an 8% pay increase. So hybrid is popular because it saves, it makes firms more profits. It saves them money because you have lower turnover. There's something totally different called fully remote. So fully remote is I never go to the office. I'm just working from home week in, week out, full time. That looks like it, you know, there's a big range, but it looks like it may reduce productivity by an average about 10%. Now you might ask, why would any firm therefore do this? It seems nuts, like minus 10%. And the reason is, that's the output, but you also have to look at the cost. First thing, fully remote employees, you don't need an office. So you're saving about 10% of cost. Second thing, you can hire them wherever. You can hire them across the UK or globally. And that looks like it saves another 20, 30%. So fully remote is not about productivity. It's about maximizing output per pound spent. And it's also pretty profitable for a bunch of roles like IT support, call centers, you know, payroll, HR, some of this stuff. There's an interesting debate I was reading around this where if you do go fully remote, what do you pay people? 
because you know there might be a wage at the bar. I mean, even in, even within the UK, you might get a London allowance. You get a bump up, you know, because you live in London. It takes into account uh, extra living costs. But if you live in America, doing one job, you might get paid a different amount. If you're doing the same job in London or the same job in Shanghai, say. But if you're suddenly remote, do you have to move away from local salaries and have like a global salary? Yes, I mean I'll tell you a great story, which is. In fact, it's very you know, personally connected. I'm from London. My wife's from Glasgow. So there was somebody, uh, I'll change countries a little bit, but I had someone in an exec ed session telling me how they had an absolute nightmare. They ran a big remote team across Europe. And one of their employees had moved from a really expensive, high-paying city to a nice, you know, Southern European beach resort. And the manager, you know, she was fine. And she said, look, they're a superstar employee. She was kind of aware of it. She said, I'm not going to do anything. Why would I waste, you know, bother interfering? Another team member comes along and now complains. She said, I'm just totally stuck. Like, what am I supposed to do? If I go and reprimand my superstar employee, I may have to leave the team. It's a disaster for team performance. If on the other hand, I ignore it. Now it's clear because someone's brought it to my attention. I upset the rest of the team and I'm breaching company protocol. And she said, you know, the problem is basically this hyper-regionalized pay system just doesn't make any sense for fully remote employees. We should move to a national or maybe even, you know, regional or global scale. So she said, look, I much prefer we just pay everyone living in Europe and North America one salary. And look, if you want to move from London to Glasgow, that's fine. As long as you get your job done, we're not going to cut your pay. That's interesting where firms are increasingly going. The reason we have this peculiar thing of paying people different rates is in 2020 when everyone was thrown home at speed most firms said look you know matt i'm just going to keep paying you your current salary i'm not going to change it but go work at home for you know five days a week now of course people move around and three years later a bunch of folks have moved so your you know colleague living one street over could be paid 20 percent more than you because they happen to work in a higher pay office back you know three and a half years ago so the future is increasingly national regional or even global pay and, you know, it's a lot easier for managers. It's a lot simpler. It means folks can move if they want. You know, it, it kind of separates work and life because they just don't really need to be that connected. And are we seeing, because this is obviously talking a lot about sort of white colour jobs, desk jobs, looking at a computer screen for most of the day. And there are lots of jobs that don't involve that. You know, if you've got to, uh, I don't know, run a shop or you're a teacher, or you're a plumber, or you're meeting people face-to-face, a job that requires face-to-face contact and interaction. Will there be a shift where actually those jobs will start having to come with some sort of premium? I've talked about it on the show before, where recruitment into teaching anecdotally has become harder because youngish graduates done a couple of years of teaching all their other friends like you said of working at home Monday to Friday you can't work from home if you're a teacher do those sorts of jobs in order to get decent people into them were they going to start attracting a a pay premium do you think absolutely so first fact is 60% of people in the UK cannot work from home at all so you're spot on that's the biggest group think of you know retail manufacturing teaching hospitals NHS where there's a huge bunch of them in fact, I teach. I teach at Stanford. It's all in person. And, you know, we're not doing any remote teaching. So that's fact one. Fact two, you're absolutely right. People value the ability to work from home two, three days a week, about the same as an 8% pay increase. So if you look in the private sector, so you compare jobs in, say, McDonald's, where you cannot work from home at all, versus, say, a civil servant, pay has gone up faster in these face-to-face jobs in the last two or three years because they're just less appealing. 
Like, who wants to go in every day for five days a week? Well, you've got to basically pay me 8 to 10% more than you did before relative to other jobs. Now, the problem has come about if you look at things like the NHS and teachers, because those are public sector jobs. And the government has basically not put pay up fast enough. So if you take teachers and you say, well, you can't work from home, but we're not giving you any pay premium because of that, it becomes incredibly hard to recruit them. So basically versus you know pay increases in the private sector for any public sector jobs that cannot work from home you should be slapping on an extra 10 percent to make good uh, but then i suppose the, the, the problem is that unlike in a in a business where you could take the money in to pay you know you could put your prices up to to fund those pay rises if if, if necessary you can't do that in the public sector because they're not producing that is you know, true so look this, you're right so i mean this is a budgetary issue. If you cut pay, which is effectively what you've done, it's harder to recruit. So it's, it's a choice for the government. Do you want to implicitly, effectively, you've cut teachers' pay by 8% because everyone else, every other job they could do, they could work from home two, three days a week as a teacher, they can't. That, of course, is going to make it very hard to hire and recruit folks. You can probably get away in the short run because people are trapped in it because, you know, they started 15 years ago. But in the long run, you can't. You know, eventually no one wants to start being a teacher, current teachers retire early. So I don't think, you know, the same with the NHS. I've, you know, I know a lot of people in the NHS and the pay rates there are just crushingly low. It's very unappealing. So, yes, it is an issue. And there are a cost of public services. You know, I'm not trying to balance the government's budget, but they do need to have competitive wages for these positions. Now, this is all sounding like this is all great for the, the white-collared ho- uh, home-working it expert or whatever but actually if you are in that position instead of having value because you're a high flyer working in london or manchester or Birmingham, you're now competing with everyone in the world living in places with probably quite lower living costs so is it, is it possible that actually wages in some of those areas which previously used to be you know high paid salary you know well salaried jobs start getting squeezed down because instead of just competing with other I don't know what it is, lawyers or IT support workers in London, you're now competing with them anywhere in the world. Exactly right. So I would give, you know, a career advice to anyone listening is free remote jobs in many ways are very appealing. You can live wherever you want in the, you know, in the UK or move internationally. You don't have to commute. There's lots of upsides. As you point out, the massive downside, if, if not now, eventually you're going to end up competing with folks all around the world. Now, what we see is for more skilled fully remote jobs, a lot of professionals and managers, folks in IT, they still meet up about every other month. So a classic fully remote thing is, you know, once a month, once every other month, you go into the headquarters in Manchester, you meet with the team for three days and go home. I would say if you're listening and you have a fully remote job, that's actually what you want because that protects you from being competed away from folks in, you know, in Brazil, in, in India, the Philippines, whatever. So if instead you are doing something like working in a call center that is really risky or hr or payroll or data entry and i think in five years if not already those jobs are going to start shifting overseas that's nick bloom speaking to me about his work as a world leading expert in working from home telling me why people are still not rushing back to the office coming up we talk about the impact on housing and the leisure economy why the future of trains might be in doubt and it really is true that everyone's playing more golf This is Matt Cholley on Times Radio, speaking to a world-leading expert in working from home, Nick Bloom. And then the sort of the broader sort of social impact of these changes, 
not we've talked about 19 billion fewer miles driven by cars in great britain since before the pandemic we can assume a lot of those are down to the fact that people aren't, aren't driving to work we can see the the ups and downs mondays and fridays seem to be much lower in terms of miles than than others what other unexpected social changes environmental changes have you come across when you've looked at this so i'll give you two others one is the impact on housing and house prices house rent so there's been a huge phenomenon called the donut effect. So what's going on? This is the American donut, which is missing the middle rather than the British one with you know the jam in the center. So <laughs> what we see is across Britain, three, four hundred thousand people have basically left city centers and moved out to the suburbs. Why is that? Well, if you've only got to go into the office two, three days a week, you can put up with a longer commute, but you want a bit of space, a home office, maybe a bigger garden. So that's pushed up prices in the suburbs and relatively pushed them down in city centres. So city centres have done okay. It's not that they've fallen, but the suburbs are just totally taken off. You know, it's rip, rip, ripped off. So one effect is suburban and particularly outer suburban areas. Think of somewhere like two hours from central London. That was previously, you can commute that each way. That's four hours a day. Now, if you're only going in two days a week, you can maybe put up with that. And people are moving that far out. The other effect is the impact on the leisure economy. So I call it, you know, I have a very detailed study on golf. So what we see is we have incredibly detailed data on how many people are playing golf actually in the US, but it's going to be the same in the UK. And we see there's been a complete explosion of golf playing post-pandemic. It's up 60%. Turns out, yeah, weekends are the same. Saturday, Sunday, the same golf playing pre-post-pandemic. All the increases come during the week, almost all of it during the working day. Think 10, 11, 2, 3 in the afternoon. Why? Well, I'm working from home two, three days a week. I like playing golf. I discovered that, you know, Wednesday, 2 p.m., the golf course kind of quiet. So I book around. My boss is, you know, on me for getting this job done. So, you know, of course, I play golf in the afternoon and that evening I work, make up, uh, you know, work in the evenings. I think that's also great. We see the same thing, by the way, shopping centers, gyms, you know, pickleball, whatever else, whatever, you know, leisure activities you want. Basically, if you work from home, you have a bit more flexibility. And say if you love playing golf, there's nothing wrong with playing in two hours during the day as long as you make up for it in the evening. And you're probably just watching two hours less TV and playing two hours more golf. That's fine. In fact, the fact that firms have been doing well, the economy generally has done reasonably well work from home, tells you there isn't some massive you know, golf negative effect. It tells you people are just switching from all their leisure in the evenings and all their work during the day to you know, intermixing this a bit more. So we've talked a lot about cars. What about other types of transport? The, the other big worry for me is the collapse of rail. So the other group that should be nervous is, you know, train commuters. Because what we're seeing, and actually I talked to Network Rail on this, is a big drop in commute volumes, particularly on Fridays, lesser on Mondays. Folks are also not buying season tickets the way they used to. Because if you're only going in, you know, three days a week, it doesn't make any sense. That starved the rail operators of revenue because that stuff was paid up front and used over the rest of the year. Now, how does this play out? I don't know. I mean, remember, you know, from history, the beaching review of the 60s that cut a lot of rail links. I have a horrible fear that we could see another wave of this going forwards where companies say, we, we, I've seen the data that, you know, traveling is down 30, 40%. The problem with rail and the tube and a lot of other transit systems is costs are fixed because you've got to pay for the track and the trains. You can't really save on that. But the revenue is down, and so you're basically losing a lot of money. How that plays out, I don't know, but it's pretty terrifying. And again, the other thing to think about is if you're hugely reliant on rail commuting, 
I'd start to, you know, on the very thinly served line that you suspect is losing money, I'd start to think about plan B because that could easily be cut in the next five years. I don't want it, but, you know, this is my other fear is the uh, the slashing of uh, commuter rail and particularly long distance. If you look at who takes that, it's professionals. So look at who's taking a Think of St. Albans into London. That's the stuff full of managers, professionals, the exact same folks that are working from home two, three days a week. So their volume and their revenue is way down. And, you know, like any business, they can't, you know, they can't make a loss forever, not a massive loss. Nick, you're literally talking about my commute. It's actually a real genuine issue. And, you know, one solution is, look, the government should pay more, but the government's in a massive budget deficit. So that's not very appealing. Got ticket prices, but ticket prices are already extremely expensive. Partly it's going to be cutting costs, which is going to be a huge fight with the unions. And partly I think they're going to unfortunately end up cutting back some services, probably more on like weekends, quiet periods, but... It's not great. You know, there are no good solutions to this. Do you think the answer might be that we, we, we move away from a Monday to Friday timetable and a Saturday and Sunday timetable? Because you're completely right. I go to my station on a Monday and a Friday. The platform's dead. Wednesday, Thursday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. There are a lot of people on the trains. You know, it's busy. It fills up. It, actually, you could have a Tuesday to Thursday timetable and then a sort of a no, Wednesday-style so- timetable. Yeah, that makes I mean, it makes sense to have three-day season tickets. It makes sense to have, you know, three-phase timetables. The problem is for the rail companies that you still got to, you know, pay for the trains and the track and the drivers, for, you know, you know they're, they're full-time employees. So if you could have drivers like farmen that, you know, work three days a week and then they had a side job, that maybe be okay. And then at least you could re- – but you still got the track and the trains. So I guess – Maybe the track is a sunk cost and you think, well, look, we don't have to pay for it. Repairs might be, relative, you know, dependent on how much you use it. The trains may... I mean, there's some stuff you can flex for sure. You can reduce it, but there's still ultimately a problem that you're only using your assets three days a week now rather than five, and that's going to reduce revenue. Um, just finally, obviously, at the moment, certainly in the UK, and I think the same is true in America, it's a pretty tight employment market. Um, actually, one of the things, come, you know, in the last couple of years, despite all the ups and downs, is that unemployment has remained pretty low. And, you know, partly as a result of Brexit and people, you know, fewer people coming into the UK doing some of the jobs they used to. If suddenly the opposite happened, if there was an economic downturn, unemployment goes up, does the power that it, employees have at the moment to basically call the shots and say, I'm only going to take this job if I'm going to do two days away from home. Do we see that flipping and suddenly employers have the have the upper hand? Or do you think this change now has been baked in? I think it's mostly been baked in. So look, we've been three and a half years now. And it's like that saying about seeing some like horrible picture. You can't unsee it. So we just can't unsee, you know, three and a half years of work from home. There will be a little bit of a relapse, but not much. So to give you some figures, offices are in the UK are running at about 50% occupancy. Every year, in, in, it's very similar in the US, and every year, hilariously, there's this return to office push in September. You know, people are back from holidays, people are back in work. The last three years, we see hardly a blip. And, you know, the joke is it's, you know, work from home three, return to office nil. It just seems like managers, CEOs, execs just don't have the power to force people in. If there is a brutal global recession, you know, imagine something catastrophic happened, like there's a nuclear event in like, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, or, you know, the president's assassinated or someone blows up the House of Parliament and things really go down, down maybe. But, you know, it was so far in, I just don't see it happening. In fact, I put out a survey in Harvard Business Review on Monday where we surveyed 500 CEOs and CFOs. And we asked them, how do you, what's the level of work from home now? What's it going to be five years from now? And they're predicting on average an increase. 
So even execs and CEOs see work from home is, is rising going forward. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Redbox Podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Get in touch to, with your comments or complaints. Email me matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. <laughs>